0: Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join our hosts, Phil Dark
1: and Kelly Stewart. Welcome to the Think Orphan Podcast, where we seek to help you navigate the orphan crisis with experts from around the world. We hope you've been enjoying season two of our Think Orphan Podcast and had a chance to listen to last week's episode with Dwight and just learning a lot about uh, his, his story and just the encouragement that he gives. It was, it was truly a great episode. But Phil, why don't you tell us a little bit about who we have on today?
0: Yeah, today we, uh, we have a great show. Um, I'm very excited for everyone out there to be able to hear from Troy Livesay. He's a co-director with his wife, Tara, of Heartline Ministries in Haiti. And Troy and Tara and all of Heart- Heartline is doing is so great. I will let Troy um, tell you all what that is. Um, in addition to Troy and uh, that interview... Uh, which I know you'll learn a lot from. We have thoughts from the field from Nick Linden with Restovic uh, Freedom Foundation, and they're, a, they're an organization also working in Haiti and um, we'll have a, another recommendation where uh, at the end of the show so definitely stick around after the interview for that but because the interview with Troy is a bit longer than our normal interviews uh, we're going to go straight to it and we're going to forego the mailbag but don't worry that we'll be back next week so anyway as we get going um, enjoy this interview and uh, I know that you'll want to take some notes so you might want
2: to get that pen and paper out
0: hey Troy it's great to have you here on the show today
2: Thanks a lot, Phil. It's great to be here with you, or at least over the interwebs.
0: Yeah, you know, this is something I've been looking forward to for a while. Um, Finally, we've been able to make it happen. Uh, The work that you and Tara have been doing in um, Haiti and just with Heartline is is just awesome. I know we have some common friends, and I've just been hearing from afar um, – all the great work that's going on, and I know that getting to know you over the last few years and to be able to hear firsthand some of the stuff has just been super encouraging to me. So, I can't wait for everyone out there, those who who know you and those who may not have heard of you guys, um, to learn more and to really kind of hear your heart and hear what God's doing in and through you. So, with that, um, why don't you just take a little bit of time to to share with with our audience, um, share with everyone out there just a little bit of your story and how you got to. Um, um, ultimately become now today the director of Heartline Haiti.
2: Sure. Um, I'll back way up just the beginning of our involvement with Haiti um, began through an adoption process um, and has led us on quite a journey since then. Um, Tara and I had two daughters, and I really wanted a son, and I have to confess this every time I tell the story because it's it's uh, required to full disclosure but um that's that's what led us into adoption was my selfish desire for a son and uh proof that god can turn things on their ear and and work them out for his good i think is part of our story but um we were drawn and decided to adopt internationally uh, back in 2000 and my experience visiting haiti for the first time was eye-opening life-changing world rocking and uh it's, it's. We've never been able to go back since, but we came with the intention of adopting one little boy and adopted um, uh, a boy and a girl following that trip, and those adoptions um, then began in 2001. And so that was the beginning of our experience, and we thought um, through all of that, after having our life changed by having poverty and the reality of the majority world in our faces for the first time, uh, it made it really hard to go back to our comfortable suburban lifestyle in Minnesota and not have it on our mind often. Um, So we pushed it off for a long time and considered moving to the mission field in our retirement. Um, That sounded like a really good, safe plan. And uh, apparently God had other plans and we found ourselves uh, a few short years later moving for a temporary assignment of 18 months um, at an existing ministry in Haiti. Um, Our desire was to give our children who had then been in our family for a few years Um, some cultural knowledge and experience back in Haiti, and for ourselves, too, to be a little more ingrained. And um, that 18-month commitment now turned into, uh, well, we're well over 10 years now. So (laughs) I guess we're staying for a little while longer than 18 months. Um, And We spent two and a half years in a rural setting at a different ministry. During that time, became close friends with John and Beth McCool, the founders of Heartline Ministries. And um, at the end of our time of two and a half years, the commitment to the the other place, I told my wife that I had peace about leaving Haiti um, because if we were to stay, the only ministry I knew of at the time that I would really love to work for was Heartline and we weren't sure that was an option. And uh, before I bought my plane tickets to leave, we got an invitation to work with John and Beth and Heartline Ministries and have been here ever since. And now as of September 1st, um, we have transitioned into the director roles, Tara and I, I'm her overseeing the maternity center that we run, and I'm overseeing the rest of our programs and operations um, and working alongside the founders, John and Beth McCool, which has been a real blessing. And um, it's going great so far.
0: Yeah, and and with that over the last few years, Heartline has gone through some transitions as well. And I know that some of that's personal to you as well, just some of the not necessarily why it was changed, but something that is 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 part of your adoption story as well that goes into and is directly related to some of the changes that have happened with Heartline over the years can you just share a little bit about Heartline and where it's come over uh, since you've started and since the McCool's founded it a few years ago and then into
2: what it is today and why some of those changes were made? Absolutely Um, I'll back up to our adoption story a little bit Uh, we came in very naive Um, and believing that we were adopting orphans from an orphanage in Haiti, in Port-au-Prince, and that's what had been presented to us, and the narrative we believed. And towards the end of our adoption process, um, and and through it, became aware that um, the little girl we adopted had a living birth mother, um, had multiple siblings in the United States who had already been adopted, and... It was eye-opening and heartbreaking to learn of the desperate material poverty that she lived in and the cultural pressure she had to honestly continue having children in order to find the support of a man, many of whom and all of those men did not stay in her lives. And then out of desperation and inability to support more and more children, um, she already had adult children here in Haiti and began having babies and placing children in in an orphanage as a desperate measure. That was the story of our little girl's birth mother. We learned during the adoption, and were blown away and heartbroken, and for our son uh, that we adopted that first time around as well. Um, We learned toward the end of the process that not only was there a birth mother in the picture that was materially poor, he was coming from an intact family.
0: Mm.
2: Birth father, birth mother, and five siblings still with their parents. And due to their religious convictions, did not believe in any sort of birth control and kept having children beyond the point they could support them financially. And therefore, this little boy was then separated from his family and left at an orphanage. That was pretty hard to take, and is still hard to carry with us. That this is how we added to our family through the beauty of adoption, and we absolutely love it and love our children dearly. But we also really dearly love their birth families, and now. They're a part of our lives and we're a part of theirs. And that is a very interesting and sometimes difficult, um, but beautiful, brutal, if you know that mm-hmm. word, um, mm-hmm. thing to navigate. But we can get deeper into that later on in the conversation. But so that was our heart and our experience with adoption. And so we came to Haiti knowing that not all of the narrative that's presented to us as Americans and North Americans and, and to the church and those in, interested in orphan care. Not all of that is actually true, and um, it's a lot more complicated and nuanced than most are aware of, and we tend, I believe, to simplify them to the least common denominator that sounds good and places us often in the position of being the heroes in the story, and um, it's not always necessarily the case. And so with that heart and kind of philosophy and background coming into our experience in Haiti. That is what led us to connect with John and Beth and Heartline um, was our similar ideas and philosophies because they had been actively involved in orphan care and running an orphanage um, for the whole time John and Beth have been in Haiti, which is now 27 years. And their story was similar to ours. They came, I believe, somewhat temporarily at the beginning to fill in for someone else and have been here 27 years. So that's just a warning to all of you out there (laughs) planning on coming temporarily. but John and Beth came and worked specifically with a children's home orphanage and Beth's background was in child development and they ran what I believe, I am biased, but I believe to be the best um, adoption and orphanage program in Haiti for many years and processed hundreds of adoptions to families um, in different countries, the majority in North America. And uh, we still get to experience and interact Relationship with those adoptive parents, uh, many of the birth families as we're here on the ground and are now even having, you know, teenage and grown children that were adopted come back and visit. And we love connecting them when possible back to birth families and kind of exploring that, walking through that together. Um, and John and Beth, though, after doing this type of work, specifically orphan care and adoptions for two decades, um, my take on it is they believed and realized that they kind of were standing there as the proverbial boy with the finger holding back the water in the dam because all we were treating as a ministry were were the symptoms mm-hmm. and not the causes. And they became aware over time that no matter how many children they accepted into the orphanage due to extremely difficult circumstances and, and how many beautiful adoptions they processed into loving birth families, it was only tiny drips in the ocean Mm -hmm. um, of the need that was out there, and there was never a reduction in the amount of women or the amount of need and the amount of children being separated from their families. So from that was birthed the idea that rather than focus on orphan care and adoption, um, we would work at strengthening the Haitian family itself and preventing children from becoming orphans, um, trying to empower specifically women at first. um, The majority of the women that we interacted with that would come to the orphanage, they were relinquishing their children for two primary reasons. That the mother had died during or shortly after childbirth um, and other family members were then bringing the children. Or number two, the families were unable to afford another child due to the realities of living in extreme poverty. Mm -hmm. Um, And as that became more and more clear that... Not only are these children not orphans, the poverty is the issue driving this and the maternal death rate. And so why we decided as a ministry, or John and Beth did, we weren't even on the scene yet. We came shortly after they had started these um, decisions. But to focus on those, shift the focus of the work from orphan orphan care to orphan prevention, family preservation, by focusing in on those two aspects, maternal health care and providing some vocational skills and training to women in order to provide what's really, in our context, a small amount of money makes the difference in a child being placed for adoption and being institutionalized and growing up in an orphanage and possibly being stuck in the system indefinitely versus um, you know a small investment can support a family, can support a woman to keep that family together. And so uh, t- at one point, and this would be an extreme case, but I know of situations where $30 a month is the difference between a child staying with their birth mother and ingrained in their birth family um, and i have to say for those that don't know that's a heck of a lot cheaper than any adoptions that i'm aware of yeah and overall a more holistic and redemptive story even though it takes us out of the hero role sometimes right um so that had been our focus. We continued to run the orphanage and process adoptions concurrently with the newly born maternity center program and what we call the women's education center, which is a vocational trade school. It begun strictly as sewing. Um, I'll get into more later. We can go through the progression of the other areas of ministry we're in and what that's grown into. But those two things were running and then the earthquake happened in January of 2010. And... At that point, the 19 children that Heartline had in our orphanage were all far enough in the process to to gain humanitarian parole status, I believe it was called, which was a special visa that was given out um, for children to be able to leave if they were in the adoption process. And so we went from having this orphanage of boys and girls' homes separately, totaling 19 kids, and they all left in one day. Hmm. And... It it's still, you know, it's, it's beautiful. We were excited, but it was also heartbreaking. And we had a lot of wonderful staff that we still have uh, serving in other capacities that were just all left with this void after these children left. And it was a real turning point in the ministry, though, because we said, OK, what do we do next? Right. We've been working towards assessing and addressing the problems further back. And what do we do now? We were hearing there's a terrible orphan crisis in Haiti post-earthquake now we're set up to help with that what do we do well at the time um after the earthquake and i'll keep this brief unicef came in the haitian government was a disaster um and unable to to really do much and i'll save the editorial comments about (laughs) that in today's age but um UNICEF, you know, wing I'm sure everyone knows of the United Nations, came in and took over child welfare and, and making the decisions as far as what would happen to the kids in Haiti post-earthquake. And when a representative of theirs came to Heartline Ministries to investigate our ability to take children in and um, care for them, because of their stance on international adoption, when they found that our organization only possessed a license to process adoptions and not do any long-term institutional orphan care, uh, they refused to place any children Hmm. with Heartline. And we were all okay with that because we were really praying hard about what the right decision was going forward, and this was through a strange source, in my opinion, uh, a definite answer to prayer, though, that the way to go forward was clear. And so post-January 2010, um, all of our focus has been on um, Orphan prevention, family preservation, and the other programs that grew out of that and no longer any orphanage or orphan care or adoptions.
0: Yeah, and I know one of those things that you were talking about as far as family preservation, as far as poverty alleviation and, and, and those uh, things, are uh, child sponsorships, you know, and that's something that I think a lot of people uh, out there misunderstand as you know, typically helping to sponsor an orphan. Um, to get them food and clothing and whatever Um, when in reality most of the sponsorship programs out there are are a family preservation model and I know that's what you guys are doing with your child sponsorships can you just share a little bit about that and what
2: that's doing yep Um, we have a lot of situations that are kind of one off based on relationship Um, we call it our family support program uh, where adoptive families are connected to birth families still back here And um, we facilitate those relationships, help the sponsor family in the states or Canada or elsewhere, um, you know, support the family. We have a liaison that works between those families and their needs, communicating those to the adoptive families or whoever the sponsors are and um, walks through that. And that's a real individualized case by case basis. A lot of times the support that goes through there is for school and education for the other children in the family is one of the biggest needs also covers um often some housing needs and and occasionally you know emergency relief type assistance in food or whatever the individual case requires Um, beyond that then we have we're up to 100 children now that are sponsored for um, their elementary school education and we plan on um, as long as the sponsors are willing following through with those same children and families um, to complete their education. And um, that's strictly, you know education focused through the sponsorship programs. But in Haiti, with the majority of people living, you know, I, I don't like using the cliche under the poverty line and all those things because it means something completely different here. But um, at the level that the majority of Haitian families live, you know, probably over 60% of them don't, are not employed. I don't have the statistics directly in front of me, and I know those can be toyed with anyway. But in my true personal experience, the majority of Nation families do not have formal education. And the majority of their support is coming from outside sources, whether it be family members that are in the States or Canada, um, other sponsorship type help wherever they've been able to gain that. Um, and to connect this to the other side of the story when it comes to orphanages and adoptions, that's another very common thing culturally that we even have heard firsthand from uh, one of the birth mothers of our adopted children that, and actually from my son's grandmother. The plan, part of it, in placing him in an orphanage was in order for him to get out of Haiti and to... Make enough wealth to be able to support the rest of the family. Mm. And that's not just an isolated incident. That's a very commonly held belief that this is a way to get children out of here and get that connection, that lifeline to money from outside of this country. Um, but going back to the sponsorship, um, to put a child through elementary education in Haiti because there is not enough um, state or government organized schooling available. That's a quality. A lot of the schools are private. They charge money and it is not a cheap venture when you're living in extreme material poverty. Um, I've seen recently one of the statistics was that over 60% of a family's income will go to putting a child through school. Mm. And that's just nearly impossible for a lot of the families. So through our child sponsorship program, it allows for a lot of children to go to school that otherwise would not have that opportunity at all and relieves the strain on the family in a lot of other ways that we hope and believe is best for the children and family overall.
0: Yeah, and it's something that you hit on something there, that the child sponsorship and this, this is something that I know over the last week or so, I've seen uh, you and, and Tara post some different articles and studies on uh, orphanages and trafficking and the connections and, and all of the things that go along with the thing that you talked about that the child sponsorship could potentially prevent, which is that feeling of desperation that, you know, you need to put your kid into a, or a feeling of you've been, you know, kind of duped in the sense of, this feeling of, uh, you have to put a child into an orphanage, uh, mm-hmm. in order for them to have a chance. And that really seems totally backwards, um, to, a to a kind of a Western, U uh, S you know, mind that, uh, that would be the answer. But can you just speak to that a little bit and, and maybe, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll post the, the study and the, the recent article on, on the show notes for this, the show, but can you just speak to that? Um, being someone on the ground who sees that side of it and how that um, is really playing out in Haiti. Okay, sure.
2: Um, this is a quote I heard that came out of a country in Africa and a different ministry, but um, it is unfortunately been ringing in my ears ever since I first read this. And, and also, unfortunately, I've found it true in our experience in Haiti that if you build an orphanage it will get filled, and what that means is, if we come in as outsiders with a relatively, you know, incredible amount of wealth and resources, you instantly have the power in that relationship and in in that cultural context. Um, if you're working in a in an impoverished country, and if you come in believing that the solution is to institutionalize children. Um, and actually, and I should back up, it's almost always with good intentions. Everyone I know that's gotten involved um, are very well-intentioned at the beginning, much like we were, just lacking in, in some of the education and knowledge um, that, that we needed to be successful in cross-cultural ministry. But with those good intentions, um, you know, and our hearts being soft and having a desire to help children, we all understand how orphanages get built but the truth of the matter is that that creates the problem because that is an option for a family living in material poverty that is better than what they have at home if they're going to eat every day guaranteed then a child will be orphaned and will be left in that institution Um, and it strikes me in this is in the report that you referenced that we'll talk about more later and and you'll have a link for um, an organization recently did a report specific to Haiti on on the orphanage situation and the the truth that children are being trafficked and people are profiting and abusing our good intentions and abusing the millions of dollars that are being pumped in to it through orphanage support, short-term missions, and and other avenues. Um, But one thing that I've seen before and I was reminded of from that report is that in the United States of America in 1909 or 100 years ago, it was determined that orphanages were not a proper solution. And we're doing more harm than good, and they were done away with. And every time I come across that, it's just kind of heartbreaking to think that many years ago, we learned that as a culture at home. Why do we think it's good enough for other cultures overseas to export something that we've done away with because we determined it was harmful for children to then? want to go and do that to other people in other cultures. And I know we don't intentionally do that, but that is the truth of the matter and and the outcome of our good intentions all too often. Um, and we know the damage that institutionalized children, or that institutionalizing them can do. I'm sure most engaged in this conversation that would listen to your podcast are familiar with the difficulties in adoptions and attachment disorder and how disruptive that can be. Um, for families on both sides, and how heartbreaking and detrimental it is for the children. And that all starts with the building of an orphanage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for those
0: of you out there, uh, some of you may have already seen this, but it's the, the Lumos uh, uh, report and it's entitled Orphanage Entrepreneurs, the Trafficking of Haiti's Invisible Children. And it goes through a lot of these issues, a lot of the issues we've talked about on this show. And it's written very, very well. Um, the authors are Georgette Muller and Mara Cavanaugh um, and colleagues. So uh, lots of people involved in this who did some research down in Haiti, went and visited, aren't just talking about it from an ivory tower, but um, have a lot of really, really good stuff in there. So again, we'll link to it on uh uh, on the show notes but uh, and hopefully we'll be able to get some of the you know one of those authors on the show here pretty soon but um, again I know you're living it out and I know that, that that those type of concerns are really why you guys do what you do every day and and going back to that I want to um, I want to really just kind of focus a little bit on it and get a story to take it out of the forest put it back and put it into the trees really as far as to get into kind of the day to day on the maternity center in particular and there was a, a post that Tara had on, on in Uh, September that said uh, today we were able to take four new ladies into the prenatal program they will begin next Thursday we had space for two older moms as well as one 13 year old due in January and one 14 year old due in April the 13 year old lives in our neighborhood and had to quit school due to the pregnancy she has colorful barrettes in her hair at the end of her braids she is 22 weeks but did not realize the movement she feels is her baby moving Lord, be near these girls. Amen. I'm sure if Tara would have said it, it would have been a lot more moving than my reading of it. But that being said, um, I think that, you know, we talked about this a little bit earlier and that's really what you guys are, are facing on a regular basis. And, and how do you speak truth into that? How do you come into those situations um, you know, by you, obviously. I mean, the people working day to day in the in the maternity center, and speak truth in the lives of these of these women. Um, and then, can you just t- to take it from there, um, and then go into how you're empowering them um, beyond the maternity center as well?
2: Sure. Um, I wish that was an isolated incident, that story, but it's all too common and very regular. Um, and obviously it's heartbreaking and difficult and honestly it would be easier to turn away from it and to try to take a higher level approach to say we're going to come in and you know distribute hundreds of thousands of condoms to keep these things from happening but those kind of solutions don't work at least not in our experience and not in the cultural context we find ourselves in and the way to truly connect and to truly minister cross-culturally in this context is through relationship. And large-scale programs and institutions do not breed relationships that affect change, in my belief, and we feel very strongly about that. And even though we'd love to have a maternity center that was able to deliver hundreds of babies a month, um, we know that that would be too much to take on and maintain the relationships we have because those relationships are where you're able to break through some of the cross-cultural barriers, boundaries, overcome um, things like superstitions, uh, cultural misnomers, uh, and really in a, a deep lack of education when it comes to certainly medical care um, and a, a lot of misinformation. And um, we're able, through the deep relationships that are forged in our small program, which is only um, – able to take in about 60 women at a time. We've recently grown and expanded, which is exciting, but um, this isn't a maternity hospital with with hundreds of women lined up having babies. This is a woman coming for a pregnancy test and being identified early in the pregnancy as high risk, um, or, you know, we, we take, it's very difficult. We turn away far more than we're able to admit, but we take those cases that have the greatest needs that we can, affect the most change and where we see um, you know otherwise this is going to be a risky situation so a lot of older moms and a lot of first-time moms and a lot of teenage girls and um, sadly i know we all have our different convictions about uh, people and their sin and their behaviors but the reality is sadly in this culture that a lot of these women are definitely not pregnant by choice and definitely we're not um, sexually active by choice mm. and that's the truth of the matter and so The women there, our staff, um, that is a mixture of American midwives, nurses, and Haitian midwives and nurses um, walk through the whole process with women. Midwifery literally means with women, and that is exactly what happens in our model. beginning early in their pregnancy once they have a pregnancy or a positive pregnancy test and enter the program. They are in education classes weekly and their health is tracked and ultrasounds performed and vitamins given and food and nutrition and heavy, heavy, heavy on the education aspect. And again, overcoming some stigmas and cultural norms that are unhealthy and some superstitions and other false beliefs and just hammering home the importance of breastfeeding is a big one. But, um, nutrition for themselves, the whole birthing process. It's amazing the amount of education they pour into these women during their pregnancies. And by then, walls come down and we just see it happen where oftentimes, and this is a common occurrence in the culture, I won't go too deep into it, but um, in poverty cultures, many people do not have privacy in so many aspects of their lives that their personal story is the thing they can keep private. And so when you're talking about how you got pregnant and how many abortions you've had, and then those are deeply personal issues that when you first meet a person, truly, honestly, you probably won't get the true story up front. And those things can be crucially important to know for the health of a woman and for the successful childbirth. Um, And it's through the type of program we have and the relationships that are developed that oftentimes by the time a baby's being born, we actually know the truth of this woman's story. Mm. And they become friends and there's trust built and an ability to then, because those barriers are down, really minister deeply. And there we see incredible fruit of the spirit and of our um, ministry efforts through those relationships that have been forged. And um, it's just a beautiful thing to behold. The bonus is women's lives are being saved Babies' lives are being saved. We have a zero maternal death rate in our clinic and uh, zero stillborn or um, uh, infant deaths. Mm-hmm. And the other amazing, beautiful thing, and this is tied to our other programs as well. Previously, our ministry, the point at which we would have intersected with these women and these families was to say, oh, you're rel- rel- relinquishing a child.
0: Right.
2: Because that was what we were offering. Now that HeartLine has changed its focus and we say, I understand your life is very difficult. How can we help you through your pregnancy and to have this baby and to help you? And by the way, would you like vocational training in order to employ and support yourself? Um, offering those things instead now, The I don't have the exact number in my head. I know we've delivered approximately 500 babies at the maternity center on top of that hundreds of women have come through the vocational school. So I would say, just to throw a round number out, about a thousand women have come through our programs, at least since we changed our focus entirely. Mm. And out of all of those, I only know for sure of one case where a woman has placed a child for adoption. And it was a very difficult situation that we understood placing that child in the orphanage. But to me, that is just absolutely staggering and astounding that simply by changing our focus of what we offer as a ministry to these women, it automatically turned off that switch of relinquishing children and separating families, and changed the narrative and the future course for all of those families. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty exciting to me. Yeah, that's super
0: exciting. Um, a- and as
2: you're doing all this work
0: over the last few years with empowering women in the maternity center, and and you're you're doing this work, and as you said, a lot of these women though aren't sexually active by choice, and they are not having these babies as something that was a planned event with a man that they love and someone that, you know, was in their life for a long time and continued to be. And so, as we've talked about, you saw the huge need for a men's ministry as well, because (laughs) taking care of the women is only half the story, and you hear over and over as you do this work, you and I both have heard, and, you know, the understanding is, it's understandable that we hear it, is there just aren't enough men. To do this work um, and to really raise these kids with fathers, which we know the fatherless crisis is a huge cause of so many issues. So, what has Heartline done in in regard to that and to address that great need?
2: We, out of that, um, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, a story, Phil, because of your children in your house. The the uh, if you give a mouse a cookie story. <laughs> yeah. And I definitely feel like (laughs) um, that is very applicable to our ministry because if you decide to stop doing orphan care and get involved in maternal health care and then vocational training, um, I'll just walk you through that progression a little bit. Um, The vocational school began as a sewing school. And if you're going to have a sewing school for women um, as it started out, some of those women aren't going to have the math skills needed to Performance sewing school, and so you're going to need to teach some math. And if you're going to teach some math, some of those women are not going to be literate, and so you're going to need to teach literacy. And now you have a literacy school, and it just expanded from there and kept growing and growing. And as we were just excited, and literally, um, John McCool says often, and I believe he was quoting maybe Rick Warren, but um, he often says, When anybody tries to give anyone credit for the work going out of Heartline, we say, This is God's wave and we've been riding it ever since. Mm. So I'm just trying to hang on because this was not a great, uh, well thought out plan in advance of how are we gonna effect change and minister cross-culturally. We're just figuring it out as we go. But along that continuum, at some point, it was nagging at our hearts. And, and, and sometimes people would bring it up and ask. But the idea that, okay, you're helping babies, you're helping women, you're supporting children in school. But we all knew in our heart of hearts that one of the foundational issues And it's deep, and it's why not enough enough of us touch it or go there. But the cultural difficulty of fatherlessness and of men um, not staying with their wives and raising their children is huge and a foundational issue that leads to so many of these other symptoms um, that we're involved in. So we couldn't ignore it. And once we were pretty stable and had (laughs) figured out as much as we could figure out um, how to run these other facets of the ministry we knew we had to at least try and so our men's discipleship program was born out of that and um, we haven't had lofty goals we figured if jesus only took on 12 guys that that was going to be our max at a time and um, so we've tried we've had small classes of men that work with a bible teacher that came to us out of our own church um, very mature young man, but just with an incredible heart for God and incredible skill in teaching and ministering to other men. And as much as I would love to be a great missionary, whatever that means, I know and and have experienced the fact that cross-cultural ministry is very difficult, and as a foreigner and outsider, we will never, ever be as effective as as someone natively from this culture. so we have a Haitian man speaking into the lives of other young men who come referred to us from their churches from their pastors and they go through a a discipleship training class with some intensive bible study a lot of prayer Um, through this we decided you know one of the things that keeps men from being able to successfully lead their families and stay with their families is the desperate financial situation they're in and in order to give them dignity they need jobs and it's very small scale i don't want to make claims that we're doing this incredible large work but Mm -hmm. um we started a bakery we have 12 men employed there there's crossover between the guys working in the bakery and the students that are in the discipleship classes and um it's it's not all (laughs) beautiful and perfect outcomes (laughs) just admit that right now it's hard work and but we're really excited that we're trying to press into that space and affect some change. And right now I'm excited. Our current class of men um, happen to be mostly um, really all musically gifted. And so they've taken it upon themselves to do outreach and, and minister themselves to the culture. And so we're just giving them kind of the background support that has allowed them to on their own, take the initiative and go start doing hospital visits for worship and prayer with, people in hospitals. They do weekly visits to a juvenile boys' prison where they teach Bible studies. And it's like we see this snowball effect of just having given them the smallest amount of support and training and saying, hey guys, what do you want to do with this? What is God calling you to do and how can you minister? And to watch them go out and minister, um, they've added in now with women from our ministry, visits to the women's prison weekly. Um, and that is tied to our bakery as well. That's, as I said, provided the jobs that are crucial. Um, but we provide physical bread uh, um, to go along with the spiritual bread they're delivering to these hospitals, mm-hmm. to these prisons. Um, and have recently added in an actual wonderful, beautiful orphanage that's desperately needed. I know we we don't want to seem like we're <laughs> bashing all the orphanages um, because there is a great need culturally here for a place to take care of handicapped children who mm-hmm. are usually Discarded, um and there's a beautiful place near us that does that and we partner with them and our discipleship guys are involved in ministering to those kids and it's just a really beautiful thing that we're excited about
0: yeah now that there's a lot a lot of good like you were saying i mean to small start small and i know recently we, we interviewed uh billy chonway and he talked about the orphan sunday and you know the 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 and he said something, never despise small beginnings, you know, and, <laughs> and there's such truth to that statement. And I think we just take one at a time, right? You know, and, and, and this work that, that has to be the way we see it is, is in order for there to be large scale change, there need to be individual lives changed first and heart change, true heart change on that, mm-hmm. on that, you know, uh, grassroots level. With that being said, you know, something I've said, uh, you know, I teach a class with some university students and, and, uh, I've, I've said off in the class and it's something that, you know, I believe uh, to a certain extent, but I'd be curious to hear if you agree with this statement and obviously it's not a silver bullet. It's not something that would solve all the problems, but I, I say this, if we could just disciple the males in all our cultures to be real gospel driven men, we would go a long way to alleviating poverty, human trafficking, and the global orphan crisis in general. Um, do you agree with that and what you've seen in Haiti in particular?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we're so far away from that in Haiti, and that, I think, speaks to why the poverty is so bad, why the challenges in Haiti are so great, is because the lack of, um, you know, fatherlessness all too often breeds fatherlessness. Mm-hmm. And it's just a cycle that we would love to see broken. Um, a friend of mine here, speaking in a church, and traced the roots of the fatherlessness back to the separation of families that happened during, um, the slave trade. And it was heartbreaking and eye-opening to hear that and realize though, that that's in part what we're still dealing with is this broken family and the all too often acceptance of, um, that that's just the way it is. That's the way it's always been. Hmm. Men don't stay with their wives and then therefore aren't even expected to all too often. And we need to change that in the smallest ways we can. Um, in part by just living that example out, but then once building relationships with men, like through our discipleship program and, and through our bakery, um, you know, gaining access to speak into their lives and, and explain that you know there's a, there's a better way, and and God's way is for the family to stay together and for men to take those responsibilities and serve their children and their wives. And I know if we can even make the smallest ripple in that tide, that it would be you know, wildly important and and a a huge success from a kingdom perspective. If for say the the six guys right now that we're really pouring into, um, I mean, I just have to say like, I don't even hope that this is possible. That all six of them would get married, father their children and stay with their families that's how difficult the challenge is and how broken things are right now. But that's what we're trying for and hoping and praying for.
0: Yeah. And I think it's that connection with the, discipleship of men and women in their identities and their true identities, as you see with the women in the maternity center and, and in the empowerment programs, as you see in the men's ministry is, is it really a lot of it comes down to an identity issue and who are we and what are we created to do and who are we created to be? And what does that mean in family and with their children and so on and so forth? And I think there's so hard um, to really break through worldviews and false identities that have been created. And like you said, when it's outside of family and family has been broken down in a society, it's so hard to recapture that and to do it, um, one to one, one on one and, and just hope and pray that, that we can start breaking it down one step at a time. So, um, you know another thing, and and I know that we're coming to the to the end, and so I, I I hesitate even to go into it, but I know that you and Tara have written a ton, so I'm going to point people to a lot of the articles to just Google Live Say blog um, and check out some of the stuff that's been written on short term trips um, by uh, Troy and Tara over the years, because there's some really really good stuff, and I I would definitely feel like we didn't get um, some of the best stuff from you if I didn't just hear from you on this issue with short-term trips because there's been so much talk about particularly orphanage tourism over the last, you know, years or a few years and, and when with when helping hurts. And, you know, the assumption, though, with all the talk is that there actually is a good way, potentially. There actually is a uh, potential, you know, good side of short-term trips. And I think that you, you hit on one of them, which is when you, you know, sometimes go and God has something for certain people to be able to stay long-term and do you know, work to empower those on the ground. Um, but what are your feelings on that as far as how can short trips be done in a way
2: that does produce more good than harm if, if possible? Mm -hmm. And I do think it is possible and I want to get that out first and say, you know, even when we address the issue, because it is an issue and I believe missions around the world. Um, and all too often. Those of us who have experienced the negative impact can come across as cynical. And I know I've battled that in my own life and and, am fighting to come back to say, how can we do this better and how can we be a part of this conversation and not throw the baby out with the bathwater? Because really and truly, my short-term experience coming to Haiti to adopt my children changed my life forever. And I know many, many people who have gone on short-term trips that change the trajectory of their life, get them involved in kingdom things things and that is beautiful and we want to encourage that um it just requires some education and i believe that the key aspect in doing it better um is just a change of heart from our end you mentioned when helping hurts i think that's absolutely a crucial um, resource that should be required reading for anyone considering doing short-term or any ministry really cross-culturally of any sort um To me, the most hard-hitting aspect of of that was having to face my own, what's described in the book as a God complex, as a Western, um, as an American Christian. And I absolutely am guilty of this. When I moved to Haiti, I was coming as the hero and as the savior in the story. Um, And when we bring that kind of, and this is a thought brought from out of that book, when we bring that kind of spiritual poverty, and our own brokenness and think that we're going to affect change in other people's material poverty, it just leads to to more brokenness. Right. Um, but we can change that tide I think crucially again the education and the preparation beforehand. Um, in my experience smaller groups of travelers are better and are able to build relationships with the missionaries uh, and, and with the beneficiaries of their programs and with the other um, people on the ground working with different ministries Again, those relationships are so crucial and key. And to me, that's extremely hard to accomplish those sort of relationships being built when it's more of a, you know, large scale tour bus. Um, and you know, we definitely don't want to encourage tourism. You mentioned that, or orphanage tourism. There's tons of resources and information about all the damage that that can do. So I won't beat that horse, but. Um, you know, I just, if you look at it from both sides, the traveler themselves, I think they deserve a better experience to be able to understand more deeply the nuances and some of the difficulties that are faced in these types of cross-cultural ministries. And to do that requires a lot of time to mm. sit and to talk, pray, and it is good to do that in person on a visit. But, um, and from the other side, Haiti in particular receives an inordinate amount, as you know, and I'm sure many do, of short-term trips. And part of the reason is it's accessibility from the United States and from our church to go have this cross-cultural experience and to see the poverty firsthand, and that is life-changing, and I'm not discounting that. Um, But if we can do a better job teaching, preparing, and open our hearts to listen and be receptive, And not be, I I see all too often, and this is what I'm working on and hope we can do better as a ministry of saying, not that short term missions are bad. But to say, we need to do them better and they can be more beneficial. And here are the guidelines. And we, as the people on the ground with the experience, would love to walk through and shepherd you through that. Mm. So please read this book check out these resources, prayerfully consider these things that you may be carrying in your heart that will do more harm than good if you export those cross-culturally and deal with that stuff. And when you're ready, come down and you're going to be blown away by seeing what God is doing. Um, You know, in Haiti, at Heartline, at any ministry you choose to visit. But I think our American culture, we all know we're short attention span, convenience store, you know, in every aspect of our lives and you can't apply those principles and that kind of living to cross-cultural ministry right it's a marathon not a sprint and if you want to invest in the people who are here running the marathon we love that we need that um but you're not going to make a great difference cross-culturally in one week and come in knowing that already and we can guide you in how you can be helpful
0: right yeah, that's so good. That's so good. And I, I, it's something I fully, fully agree with. And something I've always talked about with short term trips is, is it's got to be first and foremost. And really the only thing is, is about relationship and building that relationship. And within the context of relationship, God will show you how you can serve and encourage each other, um, on both sides. And, and one of the questions that, that I always ask, and it goes to exactly what you were saying is, instead of saying, as a as a group what are we going to do which is typically the question that i'm sure you get a lot when people call what are we going to do what are we going to do the question i always turn back on them is ask yourself and your team who are we going to be because when you do that you know you're not going to say oh, i'm going to be a god you know but if you start with <laughs> what are we going to do the god complex could come out really really easily and uh, far too often does Mm-hmm. So um, with that, I definitely want to again. Uh, that is just a taste of some of the the goodness that you'll get from the blog. I know Troy and Tara um, have that. Can you give the the link for that um, so people can check that out if they want more from more wisdom from you guys?
2: Yep, the shortest route there is www.live.sayhaiti.com, okay. and then on, Heartline Ministries is what? Yep, Heartline Ministries plural .org.
0: Okay, great. And, and as we uh, wrap up the interview, we're going to finish up with a couple questions that uh, we, we do ask all our guests. And, you know, as you might imagine, we could talk for, for hours and hours about these things, Troy, but, uh, you know, that's just not possible today. But I know that hopefully we'll continue the conversation and, and people out there will continue this conversation, um, uh, whether it's through, um, you know, their own conversations or maybe connecting with you or, um, on, uh, or Tara on this and potentially even... Um, you know, visiting in the right way uh, on a short-term trip. But the last couple questions that we have, the first one is what, uh, Troy, have you read, listened to, or watched in the past few months that has most impacted your thinking on the issues surrounding orphan care?
2: Well, I'll start with the one that you already mentioned, and that's the recent LUMAS report um, on trafficking and orphanages in Haiti. I'm blown away and so thankful for the amount of research and facts instead of the experiential kind of evidence that I have and have shared and have been trying to communicate. Um, these, this organization, um, has done an incredible job and it is going to seem to many who look at it as, as possible fiction. It is because the The situation is so bad in Haiti. Um, It starts out with, and I'll just share and then you can all go read it yourself, but that there are an estimated 32,000 children right now today living in orphanages in Haiti. Hmm. Of those estimated 32,000, more than 80% of them are not orphans. Hmm. And to have someone to, for someone to have come in and done the research that they have done and then put together this report, is it's just so helpful and confirming and affirming for us um, in, because I have firsthand visited and experienced the horrors that existed in two of the specific orphanages mentioned in this report. I can tell you firsthand that these are real, true stories and you will be horrified with how awful and sad the situation is and it's not hyperbole and the answer isn't to continue to support financially people who are profiting in the business of orphanages and in what results ultimately in the trafficking trafficking of children. So mm-hmm. obviously I'm feeling passionate about it because yeah. you asked, no, absolutely. Recently, and this is incredible. And I'm thankful for this resource and for the way to help educate and, and move forward in that whole space. Um, other recent read that I love is, um, a book called slow kingdom coming by Kent Annan And, um, I'm biased because Kent um, used to live in Haiti and has written great other books about Haiti and works with an amazing organization here that we love. And, um, but he wrote this book and it's about, I thought it was about spiritual practices and it is, um, but it also speaks so well to how we can do ministry itself better um, and just grow and I don't know. It just resonated so deeply with my soul. I sent Kent a picture of the book where I marked every single page almost. It's kind of embarrassing. And it's a short read. Um, it should be. It's not a long book, so I'd encourage you to pick it up. But it may take you a really long time to dig through it because it, it kind of reads you as you go. Um, so I highly recommend that book, Slow Kingdom Coming.
0: Well, it wouldn't be appropriate for a book called Slow Kingdom Coming to be a quick read. So, um, But it looks so short, I yeah. thought – knock this out in a weekend well (laughs) those are always the best because you still feel like you're moving through it even though uh, it might take a little longer
2: I'm sure that it speaks more to my immaturity and lack of depth so others may find a really easy time with it probably not probably probably not
0: but uh, you know it kind of reminds me of the pursuit of God by Tozer you know you kind of pick that up and you go oh yeah that's a quick easy read but uh, you get into it and it's not quite the same so I spent
2: a month with that one I think
0: (laughs) So, the last question, uh, what one person has most impacted your thinking on the issues surrounding orphan care, and I know that 's a hard question, but uh, but because uh, i'm sure there's so many, but you know it could be an example one person that has impacted your thinking and why
2: um, and f- so everyone knows full disclosure you shared that question with me ahead of time, so I had time to prepare, and when I first read it, I thought, "Wow, what a hard question to answer um, but then the answer came to me and I know this is absolutely the person that has uh, impacted me the most on it, and that is the birth mother of my two adopted daughters. Mm. Um, and sorry for being emotional about it, but to know firsthand the difficulties that have existed in this woman's life to have led to the decisions, the extremely difficult decisions she made um, and the ways that that blessed my family and my two beautiful Haitian daughters um, And what that means to walk through that together, that is the thing that informs me, that challenges me, that um, Mm. makes me passionate about knowing we can do better and we need to try harder and we need to reevaluate this whole thing because there are human beings on the other side of some of these transactions and they're beautiful souls and they are faithful, strong, um, amazing people who happen to be impoverished materially – but who you know, deserve much more than I ever have in my life, and they've, you know, just by the randomness of the geography we were born in, how incredibly different our lives are. So when I think orphan care and where it has gone wrong and how it can be done better, I just see beyond's face, and uh, it just really impacts me deeply.
0: Well, thank you so much, Troy. Thank you for that. Thank you for uh, just the, the realness and the raw uh, conversation that we were able to have today. I, I, I value your friendship. I value what you're doing. Um, and I'm so encouraged by uh, the life that uh, you and your family are living um, in, in so many different ways that are impacting um, those around you. So keep it up,
2: my brother. And thank you for your time today. Thank you very much. I'm really glad to have this opportunity to just talk with you and hang out, I guess we call it a little bit. And I just appreciate anyone and everyone who's listening and would love to continue these conversations in the future.
0: Well, once again, uh, I just hope that you enjoyed that interview uh, this time with Troy and as you saw, or as you listened, as you heard, um, he's a man with a lot of wisdom. He's a man with a lot of experience. And I just personally have learned from him in my relationship with him over the last few years. We've, we've been able to develop a friendship and, um, really work together on a few projects. And I've just, I've heard a lot from his heart and everything you heard there, um, was the real deal. So Kelly, what'd you, what you think of, what you think of that interview?
1: I too have heard so many great things about the Live Says and the work they do in Haiti and I'm just so impressed with uh, their commitment. And I think the thing that, I wanted to highlight that stood out because there was a lot was just his emphasis on relationships and how they choose to kind of stay small and are able to really, um, be there for the women. They're really able to walk with them. They're really able to disciple them. Um, they're, they're really able to create an environment where these women, um, hear the gospel, where they, where they have great care and where they are loved on. And, and so, I think because of that, they have really great outcomes. And so I think it's just that concept that we always think things have to be big and large and full force, but just the fact that this is, a, um, in the world's eyes, probably a smaller context, but just the impact they're having is, is huge. So I really thought that was such a great, um, I think that's a great model.
0: Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. I mean, I think sometimes, you know, there's, there's a place in our world for small organizations, for big organizations, um, and everywhere in between. And I, I just really appreciate how, you know, as you heard from Troy in that interview, how they basically are saying, okay, God, what do you have for us? And, you know, it started as an orphanage and then it basically that got taken away. And instead of saying, oh man, what are we going to do? They basically have, have said, you know what? there's a there's a better ministry for us and they have taken that to an amazing levels with what they're doing with the women than the men knowing that that's a huge need as we've talked about as you, as we talked about on last episode with 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 the interview with Dwight Taylor the huge need for more men you know, males being men and that's what their their male discipleship is all about. And then, you know, to say we need to empower the women and then child sponsorships and the educating of the children, all of it's just a very holistic ministry that I really appreciate and, and their thoughtfulness and how they are really truly thinking through all these issues. And if any of you out there read their blog, um, I know that you've been inspired by them and their thoughtfulness on a lot of the short term missions and a lot of other issues. Um, but uh, those of you who haven't, I invite you to go to their blog and read it and just really they're they're very both Troy and and Tara are very thoughtful in what they do. And um, I know you'll be encouraged and more encouraged with that um, with their blog as well as, as this interview. So any last thoughts on that, Kelly?
1: No, I think you just the holistic approach and the fact that this this is kind of the side of family preservation that we've talked about that is a part of orphan. Uh, orphan care and just man being able to uh, prevent orphans is just as important, if not more so, than uh, caring for orphans after um, afterwards. And so, I think just what they're doing in such an impoverished nation um, is is such a it has such impact. So, I hope people too will check out the blog because it's some good good stuff.
0: Yeah. And, and another guy um, that is doing some work in Haiti is Nick Linden. Um, and he is with the Restovic Freedom Foundation. He is our uh, man that has given us some thoughts from the field today. I, again, was able to interview him for and just ask him a simple question of what is the one uh, one of the biggest issues that that we're facing today in orphan care and how can we address it? And here was Nick's response. There are a lot of issues that could be addressed, but one of the biggest opportunities I think
2: exists for this movement is um, is as we continue to envision what collaboration could look like, is starting to tackle the much bigger systemic um, issues at national and cultural levels uh, and starting to do it together. So beyond just the starfish story of of addressing one child who needs to get care, starting to address the beach full of starfish that, that you know, has a, there's a st- systemic problem that if we could address it, we might start to see a reduction in the number of starfish who need to get thrown back in the ocean. And I think together we can start envisioning that reality more and more and doing something very tangible about it more and more
1: a lot of great things going on in Haiti and just um, a lot of organizations that are seeking to help and as you've heard, if you've listened, we've, we have highlighted a few um, organizations that Troy has actually recommended to us um, in in um, in the after effects of Hurricane Matthew and so we would encourage you to uh, think again just very um, critically of who you're going to donate money to and also just, just click over to some of our other show notes that have those links and we'll put them up again on these show notes. So you have it right there of just some, uh, truly, uh, reputable, um, organizations that are able to help those in Haiti. So Phil, anything else? Well, we got the,
0: uh, recommendations is what we got left today. And Phil and Kelly recommends, um, and, uh, Today, we actually have a couple videos that I have uh, seen in the past and and was reintroduced to them uh, a few days ago with my class as we're studying foster care. And these movies are the removed videos and it's removed uh, film one and two, part one and part two. And it's it's a very um, moving and very, uh, it's just, it's a great um, picture of foster care. The unfortunate sides of it, the difficult sides of it, the potential joys and the ups and downs and the roller coaster that, and it's from the perspective of a of a little girl um, going through it. And so it, it's something that talks about the the biological side, from the foster parent side, from the potential adoptive parent side, and it's it's done very well, um, at least in my opinion. So I do strongly recommend checking that out on on YouTube. You just Google removed. Um, video and it should be the first thing that pops up so I recommend that and I just uh, hope that again you guys have learned a, a lot today and that you continue learning more and more every day how you can love orphaned and vulnerable children better and better each day of your life have a great week